Elizabeth Fritzel spent 24 years in captivity, confined to a makeshift cellar, and reportedly tortured at the hands of her own father. But let's go back a bit. On August 28th of 1984, 18-year-old Elizabeth Fritzel went missing. Her mother, Rosemary, hastily filed a missing persons report frantic over the whereabouts of her daughter. And for weeks, there was no word from Elizabeth, and her parents were left to assume the worst. Then out of nowhere, a letter arrived from Elizabeth, claiming that she had grown tired of her family and the life they had built together and joined a religious cult, something that she had talked about previously doing. But the truth is a lot more complicated. The truth was that Joseph Fritzel, her father, knew exactly where Elizabeth Fritzel was the entire time. She was 20 feet below where the police officer was standing when they gave the report. Because or earlier on August 28th of 1984, Joseph called his daughter into the basement of the family's home. He was refitting a door to a newly renovated cellar and needed help carrying it. As Elizabeth held the door, Joseph fixed it into place. And as soon as it was on its hinges, he swung it open, forcing Elizabeth inside and knocking her unconscious with an ether-soaked towel. For the next 24 years, the inside of this dirt-walled cellar would be the only thing that Elizabeth Fritzel would see. Her father would lie to her mother and the police and tenants and everyone else around them. A girl of 19 years old who had taken seriously ill at the home of 40 Yabashas. As luck would have it, this was Joseph Fritzl's house. He found her and called an ambulance. She was taken to the hospital where doctors saw that she was very pale and bleeding from her tongue. Then about an hour after her admission, Fritzl arrived and saw Dr. Albert Reiter. He told him that the girl's mother, his daughter Elizabeth, was unable and unwilling to look after her and had dumped her at his home. She said, or he said, that Elizabeth had left a note. The note said that Kirsten, the girl, had suffered from headaches and to take an aspirin and then began suffering convulsions, hence the bleeding tongue. And then Joseph Fretzel simply walked away. After all, he had his own family to look after. You are now listening to Murder V Wrote, and I'm your host, V. So Kristen is at the hospital. I'm sorry, Kirsten is at the hospital and she got worse. The fits continued. She lapsed in and out of consciousness and her immune system didn't seem to be working. The doctors issued an appeal for her mother to come forward and give them the medical history of this mysterious patient, but there was no response. A week went by and Kirsten deteriorated. By now she was on a ventilator and in a medically induced coma with her kidneys functioning artificially but still no mother came. Then, Saturday, April the 26th, Elizabeth Fretzel appeared on the streets of Amsterdam for the first time since her disappearance. She was with her father and heading towards the hospital. When they reached the grounds, the police, tipped off that they were on their way, detained them. So poor was Kristen's condition, Kirsten, sorry, 
of poor Kirsten's condition. She had lost nearly all of her teeth and was excessively pale and severely malnourished that they wanted to question her mother with a view to bringing charges of child neglect. So they took her to her room and began to talk. Right from the start, there was something very odd about Elizabeth. Apparently only 42, she looked with her gray hair and almost white complexion like an institutionalized woman in her 60s. She was nervous too, and suddenly after they suddenly asked if they could guarantee that she and her children would never have to see Joseph Fritzl again. This helpful, polite man who had brought his daughter's note and then his daughter to the hospital. And then she told them a story that even now, eight days after its retelling, is something beyond belief. Elizabeth hadn't run away to join a cult. Instead, her father had been beating her and, having, and raping her and had her locked away in the cellar. She had had multiple children by him, and they neither know freedom nor the rest of society. And the only person that they had seen was their jailer, the man who would alternately play with them and terrorize them, who told them if they tried to escape, they would be gassed in a chamber, who raped their mother, and yet with his boxes of groceries and meals that he shoved through a hatch was their only lifeline. The history of Joseph Fritzl begins on the April, April 9th, 1935 with his birth in a town that he was to make notorious. Most of his first 10 years were spent under the Third Reich, with Frank Fritz listed on Amsterdam's war memorial, but the town council refused to say if that was Joseph's father. Fully five days after Joseph was, erector, was arrested, Austrian police said, I don't even know who his parents were. Though that lack of knowledge, even though the reluctance the reluctance to thoroughly seek it is a theme that echoes and echoes through the Joseph Fritzl story. The fleeting certainty of his bio biography begins when he finished his schooling. First, he studied electrical engineering at a polytechnic school, and then took a job at a steel company. Um, in his early days there in 1956, when he was 21, he married a then 17-year-old Rosemarie and started a family of seven children with her. From that point, the facts of his business life become patchy. From 1969 to 71, he worked for a construction materials firm uh, where he was described as an intelligent worker and a good technician. And after that, he was a traveling salesman for a German company. And then in 1973, he and his wife bought an inn and summer campground in the mountains, which they ran until 1996. And at some point, the man who already owned a very large townhouse got into property further buying homes. All the while, his family was growing. Rosemarie was born in 1961, and then Ulrich, Doris, Harold, and then Elizabeth in 1966, and then the twins, Joseph Jr. and Gabriel in 1971. Outwardly, all was well. Joseph Fritzl was a smartly dressed engineer who drove a Mercedes and had such well-behaved children. But now we know that even though he dragged his daughter off to spawn this subterranean brood, he was showing signs long ago that all was not well with him. There is a woman who came out shortly after Joseph Fritzl was arrested and says that she was raped by him. And she said, I saw his picture in the paper and I knew, yes, that is him. She says her attacker broke into her home, held a knife to her throat, and raped her in her own bed. Officials said that the rape file has been found and is being studied. The police said it turns out that she also that they also recorded him as a suspect in two other sex attacks in 1974 and 1982, and he was investigated for arson. 
There's also the unsolved matter of Martina Posh, whose body was found in 1986 in a lake near the inn the Fritzels owned. Martina was 17 years old and had been raped and bore a striking resemblance to Elizabeth. Inside the home, too, the domestic marionette, not an unknown character um, to the provincial Austria among men of that age, was something altogether more ugly. In 1977, when Elizabeth was 11, Joseph Fritzl began sexually assaulting her. The girl, already an outsider at school, became more withdrawn. Her best friend, Krista, said Elizabeth always had to, be, had to be home half an hour after school finished and added, quote, I was never allowed to visit her. The only explanation she ever gave was that her father was very strict. I did not see him, but he was always there between us because his influence over her, like an invisible presence you could always feel, end quote. A year after the molesting of Elizabeth began, Joseph Fritzl applied for a planning permission to turn his basement into a nuclear shelter, as many did in the Cold War years. He worked on it over the next five years, installing a steel door, uh, it's thought with some help because it weighed 661 pounds, and officials came and approved what he was doing in 1983. They even gave him state funds towards its construction. Why not? After all, ever the good family man, he was only building a shelter for his wife and children. But it is possible that he was all along planning the new secure quarters to make Elizabeth's prison. But whenever the scheme to capture Elizabeth was first conceived, in 1984, he put it into effect. Once he hauled an unconscious Elizabeth down to the basement and over to a cupboard, he moved it to reveal a three-foot-high door and took her and himself through it. And so into the cramped and primitive rooms that were her sole environment for the next 24 years. He raped her and then chained her to an iron pipe, returning ever so often to feed her and repeat the rape. Up above her head, her mother Rosemary reported her missing and fretted and worried about what could have become her what could have become of her until joseph good old reliable joseph told the girl told everyone that elizabeth had run off to join a religious cult after all he told everyone she had not hadn't she run away before so we've talked a little bit about joseph ritzel and elizabeth being locked in a cellar for 24 years but before we finish up the story let's talk a bit about incest um so in most cultures Incest is a taboo subject, right? Like, or, or it's taboo in itself. Like, there aren't too many cultures or too many outliers in which incest is considered to be okay. Now, the legal definition of incest varies from state to state, but most often includes a prohibition of sexual contact between persons who are related by blood and or social ties. The social ties part is important because people often will have instances where children are um, raped or abused by um, their custodial parents partner so maybe not their partner by marriage but a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend or in some cases they are married to this person so then it is a step parent um, most states consider that minor children cannot give consent before a defined age. Therefore, child slash adult incest is a criminal act, whether there is coercion or violence involved. So this is also something to keep in mind because the age of consent is varies from state to state. There is no formulating 
line or age. It just depends on what state you're in. So by that definition, even if you don't necessarily agree or disagree that incest is wrong, and my God, I hope you listen to this show, you believe that incest is completely wrong. Statutory rape is wrong and that is is illegal. So incest part aside, you cannot have sex with children because they are not able to legally consent. Um, so some theorists and researchers have broadened the term to include any sexual betrayal of relationship or trust between a child or an adult. This definition emphasizes the psychological trauma that occurs with childhood sexual abuse. Accurate prevalence statistics are difficult to obtain because this type of crime a lot of times goes unreported so that no one gets arrested and uh, there's a lot of shame and secretiveness around it um a lot of survivors of childhood incest you know block it away or don't want to think about it or don't want to talk about it and once they're able to kind of get out of the situation in which they are being abused they don't often go to look for help. In a lot of cases, um, the statute of limitations is up on any type of um, criminal proceedings that could happen. And so a lot of them simply out of not wanting to relive that trauma, just don't talk about it. But most researchers would agree that between 20 and 25% of girls and about 2% to 16% of boys will be sexually abused by the age of 18. Men account for 90 to 95% of the perpetration for both girls and boys. And most often it's in the father role, although there is perpetration by women and it is most likely underreported. So that is just to say that Although they're saying with these numbers that 90 to 95% of it is men, they think that that number could be skewed a bit and it could be more like 80 to 85 with women picking up the other part and it's just not being reported. Now, I will say this about especially maybe American culture for those of my listeners, uh, certainly this type of thing is taboo. But what we often see are unhealthy bonds and relationships between mothers and sons. Um, and we also see this type of unhealthy relationship where we have um, attractive younger teachers who are starting to enter the workforce um, and teach high schoolers when they may not be that far removed from high school themselves. And then they often have inappropriate relationships with their students. So there's suddenly this, there's suddenly this kind of trope about, you know, teachers having um, sexual relationships with uh, their students and and boys thinking that because they're supposed to have this great sexual prowess that it is a badge of honor to have had somebody have sex with you when you were below the age of consent. So very often when it is boys who are on the receiving end of sexual assault from women, they don't report it because they feel like that is something that they should be proud of. And I hope that I am doing my part that you are too to have conversations about that so that men know that it is okay and boys know that it is okay to report sexual assault that happens to them. Um, but I digress, and that is a conversation for another day. Um, incest typically begins when a child is between the ages of 8 and 12 and will last an average of four years. Um, and it averages about 20 incidents over that time frame. Um, this obviously can be more or less, can start younger or older, but usually what the, the determining factor here is that depending on the person's proclivities or what it is that makes them attracted or, or what made them want to have sex with 
a child particularly. It could just be that there's a certain attraction to small children, a certain type of prepubescent body type. It could be that they're just at an age where they're smaller and so they're easier to keep quiet and control. Um, so there are many different factors that go into why that is the typical age and why it lasts about four years. Um, researchers think that maybe it's about 20 incidents over the course of that four years because it is very difficult, especially when you are all living in the home together, to maybe have privacy when you are one, maybe not the incestuous relationship does not extend to other members of the family or if you are again hiding it from all the other family members then is, then you have to find times and places that you can do these things which may mean sneaking into a bedroom at night or wait until everyone is out of the house and sometimes that can be increasingly difficult depending on who else is in the family dynamic and the household so although stereotypes are abound regarding incest uh incest crosses across all ethnic groups so ethnic groups, socioeconomic statuses, and is no more likely in rural areas than urban ones. Um, I think that this is important part to talk about because very often we think about incest, we think about it being from people that are uneducated, people that live in like these country areas, you know, we make these stereotypical jokes about people living in the South. Um, I won't say any particular state, but you know, like the, they say these, you know, backwoods hicks or whatever, and they don't know any better. And they're all married to their sisters and brothers and cousins. And I think that is a running joke, but the statistics show that really it happens across all places with all different people, with all different levels of money, with all different levels of education. So generally, the greater psychological trauma is associated with the younger age of onset, a close relationship between the child and the perpetrator, and a longer duration or greater frequency of incidences. So psychological effects on the victim are often tied to the developmental age of the child where the incest occurred. Uh, so the idiosyncratic meaning of experience greatly influences the amount and type of trauma experienced. Initially, the reaction to the outcry is influential regarding recovery. If the child is believed by the adults they tell, blame is placed on the perpetrator and support is given, then there's usually a good prognosis of healing. Um, if the child is not believed or is blamed for the abuse, then this brings more psychological distress um, than would otherwise be encountered. So I think that's just common sense, right? Like if your child, if your child is, if a child experiences abuse and they're taught to report it and then they're believed by the people they reported to, then they're going to get health and they're going to get help. They're going to get treated like they should rather than someone not believing them. Basically, they're being told they're lying and that they're making it up. And what also happens is this creates a, a vicious cycle because if you, as a, if a child goes and reports that they are being sexually abused or that they are a victim of incest and the adults they tell don't believe them, now they realize or they feel a learned helplessness. Um, so if you aren't familiar with what learned helplessness is in layman terms, basically this means that because you are not able to get out of the situation that you're in or you're in a poor situation that keeps repeating itself and no matter what you do it is not helped you eventually learn to keep you eventually feel helpless and then no longer try to get yourself out of the situation you can liken it to maybe being locked in a maze right so you go out of the maze and 
you're locked in there and you try every day to escape this maze and then you're you know are never successful you get a little bit closer to the door you can see the door and then something snatches you and pulls you all the way back to the beginning so you're never out so then eventually after trying and trying and trying and never succeeding to escape this maze you simply just quit trying and accept that this is your fate to be stuck in a maze and the same thing can be applied to children that are in incest or sexual abuse situations where they're not believed if i'm not believing the child then i'm sending the child back to the place where they are being harmed to be with a person that is per, you know that is committing this crime against them and now that that person knows that they essentially have free range because no one believed the child the child also feels like well i have to let them do whatever they're doing because nobody believes me anyway and thus that begins a very long hard to get out of cycle of trauma so adults who as children experience no intervention or poor intervention often experience a range of psychological problems due to the incest the most common psychological effect for victims and survivors um, of incest is a pervasive self-blame and post-traumatic stress disorder which is characterized by hypervigilance and anxiety, avoidance of cues that remind them of the abuse, and intrusive thoughts about the abuse are often observed with victims of incest. Adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse can also experience depression, suicidal ideation and attempts, and substance abuse. Sexual functioning can also be disturbed from lack of sexual desire to indiscriminate sexual behaviors. Their relationships are also affected as many victims and survivors note that they have difficulties with trusting other people. Victims often use disassociation to cope with difficulties throughout their lives because it is likely adaptive skill during the actual abuse. Somatization is a common occurrence with stress-related medical problems such as TMJ and reproductive illnesses. Incest victims often report repeated re-victimization throughout their lives, including other forms of interpersonal violence, such as battering and rape in adulthood, as well as increased frequency as victimization in other violent crimes. Importantly, the above psychological reaction should be regarded as ways to cope as a child with a very intrusive and overwhelming experience that may or may not be adaptive into adulthood. So what all that means is that when you are a victim of childhood sexual abuse or incest as adults, when you are not a, given the tools as a child to cope with this, then it shows up in many different forms of having um psychological disorders, everything from the suicidal ideations to depression to difficulties with other adult relationships or interpersonal relationships. And a lot of it is simply just a coping mechanism um, to get through what is a seriously traumatic experience. Um, few criminal charges are often or normally filed when incest occurs. Uh, usually, again, as we talked about a bit earlier, what happens there with the incest um, is that normally the statute of limitations has gone by or if you report someone for incest or for sexual assault, then a lot of times the family members are either compliant or they are not um, on board for pressing charges or they, you know, basically don't report. Um, I will say this, I think that a lot of times families uh, 
want to keep something like that a secret because especially in America or in pretty much everywhere else, it is taboo. You don't do that. You don't have sex with children. You don't certainly don't have sex with your, with your own children. And so to do something like that is considered disgusting and the worst of the worst for many cultures. And so families, because they don't want to have that shame associated, they don't want, because they feel guilt. Well, why didn't I see, why didn't I hear if they even believe the children, then they simply send that person away or say, well, you know, we're, you can't live here anymore. You have to find somewhere else to go. So they allow that person to go victimize other people or to just be away from the child they're victimizing instead of going to the police. They prefer to handle it within their family and not bring quote unquote shame to their family instead of reporting this person to the authorities. But as adults, victims are winning increasing numbers of civil cases and the statute of limitations is being extended in many states for the first time um, in history. So that is a big win for advocates of child abuse and child incest, as well as like child marriage, because you are allowing these people to not only heal in their own time and space, but still have the, you know, the avenue to be able to press charges, even if they wait a year or two before they have the courage to come forward and speak and still have someone believe them. Unfortunately, for more perpetrators, there is little chance of being caught or prosecuted, and most will abuse several children during their lifetimes. And this is what I was talking about with family members often just removing them from the household or telling the children to stay away from them or doing things like not leaving them alone with children, not letting them be in the presence of the children so that they can monitor them and keep an eye on that instead of turning them over to the authorities. And again, as I spoke earlier in the segment about how children very often suppress those memories or are so ingrained and just so helpless in what's happening once they aren't believed that they just buy their time until they're able to get out of the house to be away from the abuse and they don't go to authorities. They just want to escape and forget that it ever happened. So incest and more overreaching um, childhood sexual abuse is a serious issue. Um, I, I am very glad that states are making laws and putting laws on the book to certainly advocate and give uh, victims and survivors more chances at healing, more chances to have justice serve and to have their day in court. Um, this isn't necessarily applicable in the Elizabeth Fritzel case that we're discussing. Obviously, there was an incestuous relationship there and her father was put in jail after this. But I think um, the reason that he was jailed was because the, the situation was so egregious to the point that it was almost not believable um, not only was he in an incestuous relationship with his daughter, he had essentially kidnapped her and imprisoned her while raping her. And there was no way to get around. There's a, a mountain of proof here when you have six other children who can attest to the fact that they were imprisoned um, and kidnapped, as well as the fact that the rape was obviously committed as she has multiple children while being chained to what amounts to a radiator. Um so I just wanted to make sure that we were kind of all on the same page about what incest looks like normally. This is an extreme case. Um, if you are looking for signs of, of sexual abuse in children, I think the best thing for you to do is I will put some references in the show notes for you if you were looking for something to read or some articles to take a look at. Um, that may be the best thing for us to do um, in that regard. 
Uh, some signs a lot of times are with younger children is, you know, in, in inappropriate um, sexual activity, things like touching themselves or gestures or movements or discussions that they wouldn't normally have or are not age appropriate. Um, you have children that are lashing out if their personalities have changed, if they're not eating, they're not sleeping, all, you know, if they seem more withdrawn, more sullen, these are all signs that there may be something going on with your child. It may not necessarily be sexual abuse, but these certainly are signs that something has changed. Um, but above all, just believe children. Um, I'm a huge advocate of that. I, you know, believe women, believe children. If your child is reporting sexual abuse, then you as a parent, as a caregiver, as an aunt, an uncle, a godchild, a, you know, a godparent, as a neighbor across the street, whomever, you have a duty to report that. And you may not feel like it matters. You may not feel like it's important, but I'm telling you that it is important. It is the work that needs to be done. And we must believe children. We must allow them to have the rights and the autonomy to have their voices heard. And with that, Let's finish the show. So for the next five years, Elizabeth lived alone. Her entire universe <clears throat> consisting at the, its largest of 60 square yards defined by a five by six, five foot, six inch high ceiling room and guarded by an electronically operated steel door. She was as trapped as an insect in a jar. No windows, no books, no sun, no fresh air or rain, just a few bare rooms and a bunker and a bed upon which she was raped. Then in 1988, Elizabeth was pregnant. The world her father had built for her not only lacked pity, it lacked doctors. And so the following year, her first child was delivered in the dungeon by the man who was her father, her captive, and her rapist. It was a girl, and she named her Kirsten. Gradually over the years, the grotesque, grotesquely conceived family expanded. Stefan in 1990, Lisa in 1992, Monica in 1994, Alex in 1996. I will point out here that Alex was a twin. Um, and when she gave birth to the twins, Alex and the other unnamed baby, she uh, was alone in the cellar and Joseph did not come down to be present for the birth of these children. She gave birth to these children, chained down there in the cellar, completely alone with no type of medication or doctors or anything. And the one twin was perfectly healthy, Alex, and the other twin was very sick from the beginning and had laborious breathing. And unfortunately, he passed away um, shortly after being born. And Joseph Fritzl actually did not come to see after Elizabeth for three days. And so she was basically in the cellar with her other children and then this newborn Alex and then Alex's now deceased twin brother. And you might ask yourself, what does one do with a baby that is deceased when you haven't gone to the hospital and your daughter is presumed missing or dead and you now have a dead baby on your hands? Well, Joseph Fritzl is a monster, so he did what monsters, I guess, do. He promptly scooped up the dead infant and threw him into the incinerator. So three of the kids, because they were criers and he did not want any attention brought to the cellar, Lisa, Monica, and Alex, they were taken upstairs and found by Fritzl. 
So in order to conceal what he was doing from Rosemarie, he would stage these elaborate discoveries of the children. He would place them in the bushes or near the home or on the doorstep. And each time the kid would be swaddled neatly and accompanied with a note that was allegedly written by Elizabeth claiming that she couldn't take care of the baby and that she was leaving it with her parents for safekeeping while she went and joined, went back off to join this cult. So over the next dozen or so years, childcare officials visited the Fritzels at least 21 times, but officials were all under the impression that Rosemary and Joseph were simply the baby's grandparents. And if Elizabeth had left a note and couldn't care for them, but they could, there was nothing wrong with it. And in good faith, allowed them to keep these children. The three other children who weren't criers as infants remained underground with Elizabeth. In time, Joseph extended the dungeon and he spent hours down there at a time, sometimes whole nights playing with or terrorizing the children, chatting to or raping their mother. And if he wasn't there, he was buying and selling property, acting like a normal family man would, you know, aside from abusing his wife, in which he would give her the rough end of his tongue. He's quoted as saying, we don't have sex anymore. She's too fat. And going twice on lengthy holidays to Thailand, which is the venue of choice for men who no longer have sex with their wives. One of the friends and a companion on his trips to Thailand, who was named Paul H. Here is an alias, obviously, because he doesn't want to be known as Joseph Fritzl's friend and who would. Um, he said that he visited the home uh, most recently in 2005. And he said that the children were all scared stiff in the presence of their dad. They were never allowed downstairs into the cellar, but we never thought anything of it. Fritzl's tenants were even warned that if they ever strayed near the cellar or took photographs of it, they would be summarily evicted. In another place, such an exclusion zone would have invited curiosity, but I guess not here. Occasionally, a letter would arrive from the rest of, with the rest of the family, assumed that their errant daughter and a sister, Elizabeth. Do not search for me, began one. It would be pointless and would only increase my and my children's suffering. Too many children and an education are not wanted there. Even without hindsight, it is odd that Elizabeth's mother, her adult sisters, or brother never once seemed to have mounted an effort to find the author of this distressing note. The years in that dungeon so easily summarized in a paragraph, so dreadfully endured in a dank reality, went on in their seasonless way. In 1999, Kirsten was 10. Three years later, she was a teenager with a new baby brother. The following year, Stefan reached 13. Did he, one wonders, even know how old he was? For this was a life measured not by days and nights, routines and holidays, but also the rotting of another truth and the grieving of their mother upstairs time was not measured for them but in 2006 his secret family began to hang heavy on joseph fritzel around christmas 2007 he got his daughter to write another letter it seems that fritzel bored with daily chores the shopping the rubbish burning and no longer beguiled by the daughter who now resembled a woman of his wife's age was preparing for the end game at some point, he would stage manage the release of Elizabeth from the cult that had held her for this past quarter of a century, and she would return to the house that she had in reality never left. But 
Kirsten's illness aborted that plan. As the 19-year-old grew increasingly sick in the cellar, where only medicines were aspirin and, and cough medicine mixtures, Elizabeth pleaded with her father to take her to the hospital. When the girl fell unconscious, the weary Fritzel agreed, and within the week, Elizabeth was making her revelations to the police. The two remaining underground children, Stefan, who was 18 at this point, and the youngest, Felix, who was five, were released that Saturday evening, and so for the first time in a world they had previously only ever seen on television. They gazed in awe at the moon, and although they shrieked with excitement as the police car set off, they flinched every time a vehicle went past, thinking it was about to hit them. The following morning at the clinic, the extraordinary encounters, the boys meeting their above ground family for the first time, and their mother, the children, Lisa, Monique, and Alex, she had not known since they were babies, and the mother she had not seen since she was a teenager. The clinic's director said the two women fell into each other's arms and wept bitterly. They held each other and did not want to let go. The older, Rosemary, just said, I am so sorry, I had no idea. It will take more than hugs to repair the damage done to this family, especially the underground part. Stefan and Felix say police cannot speak normally and use mainly growls and coos to communicate with each other. Um, the clinic's director said that he was most distressed by Felix because he'd jump and start at the, the smallest thing or bump. Therapy of a different order might be delivered on Fritzl himself when in due course he is given a taste of being behind a heavy locked door that is not open from the inside. Their conflicting reports about his mental state, defiant, say the police, broken man, says his lawyer. It depends on who you want to believe. But the only people that are talking freely are an assortment of old tenants. Um, one of them, man named Alfred, has been the most vocal. And he says of the cellar, he used to take food and shopping down there in a wheelbarrow at night. Other times, I could sometimes hear a knocking from the cellar that I couldn't explain. Best, of course, not to ask. What the tenants didn't know is that others also heard, or what I should say what Alfred didn't know, is that other tenants also heard the knocking and the bumping on the pipes, especially the ones that lived on the first floor of the Fritzl home, and they never knew what had happened right beneath them. Because when they asked about it, Joseph explained it away as all sounds blaming the faulty piping and a noisy heater. So, meanwhile, the big questions go unanswered. Did his wife know? Or did latterly, did he let someone on the secret? There have been reports that one of Elizabeth's brothers had access to the cellar, and six officers are searched the cellar looking for evidence. I think what would have been worse if Fritzl had not had a confidant, long past the age when men have heart attacks and, and strokes, I can only imagine if he had killed over before somebody had found Elizabeth and the rest of the children. A coronary, perhaps, or a seizure, or whatever it may have been. What then? A funeral with his widow and seven children and three grandchildren in weeping attendance. Local traders coming to pay their respects, a few old friends from fishing coming, and afterwards were passed at the Fritzl house, all while beneath their feet, Elizabeth, Kirsten, Stefan, 
and Felix Britzel would have been slowly starving to death, their hammerings and shouts insulated. How long would it have been before their skeletons were found? Ten years? Twenty years? Maybe never. Their imprisonment in three cases, their very existence, dying with the respectable engineer that wouldn't have been the wiser. Today, after this fallout from being in captivity for 24 years, Elizabeth Fritzel lives under a new identity in a secret Austrian village known only as Village X. The home is under constant CCTV surveillance and police patrol every corner. The family doesn't allow interviews anywhere within their walls and they decline to give any themselves. And though she is now in her mid-50s, the last photo taken of her was when she was just 16 years old. And I will post that on the show site for you guys to take a look at. The efforts to conceal her new identity were made to keep her past hidden from the media and let her live her new life. Many believe, however, that they've done a better job of ensuring her, her immortality of the girl that was held captive for 24 years. So this was a short one, but I just thought that this was an interesting story for us to get our feet with and get back into the swing of things. I know I have been gone from you guys for so long and I am so, 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 so sorry. I had some technical difficulties and then life, because life was lifing, guys. Life was super lifing. But I'm here, I'm back, and I wanted to share the story of Elizabeth Fritzel. I didn't want to come back for someone <laughs> to talk about an actual murder, but we're going to get into plenty of murders next episode so this is just kind of a bonus episode if, if you will um and then we're going to get another episode that drops on thursday so i hope you guys are super excited for that um again you can always email the show that is murdervpod at gmail.com you can tweet me that's at murdervpod on twitter um or the instagram is also murdervpod i love to hear from you i love to talk to you um, I thank you guys for hanging out, hanging in there with me, telling me, hey, girl, get your butt back on the mic. We miss you. We need to talk about murders. Um, the good news is we'll probably have some merch. I'm working on some stickers and some cups to send out to you guys so we can <laughs> have some fun giveaways. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I've been working on. Um, and hopefully I'll hear from you guys and we can talk more. Um, so we're going to get into some very interesting stories uh, coming up. So I hope you enjoy this very short, quick bonus episode, and I will look forward to talking with you about murder on Thursday as well. Again, thank you guys for tuning in, and this has been Murder V. Wrote. I'm your host, Beat.